Hi folks, my name's Jesse. I am the worship pastor at the Kingdom Vineyard Church, which is based in St Andrews, but we're kind of a regional church uh, in East Fife on the east coast of Scotland. Uh, we were planted from out of Riverside Vineyard in London in 2004. I've been there since 2005, so uh, clearly I don't sound Scottish. That's because I'm a Londoner and I'm uh, living in Scotland now. Maybe accepted me to the point where they offered me a free education in the university, which I gratefully received. And, um, uh, yeah, sitting in the front row here are three of my finest worship team members. So just, uh, they, they look like they're here to learn, but actually they're probably reporting back to my pastor. Um, make sure I don't say anything heretical. But, um, I'm grateful for you guys coming along to this uh, seminar. Uh, it's uh, before before we start. I'd better um, just do do credits. A lot of this is my own work, but actually Tim, who sat here, has uh, contributed a lot. We've been writing a lot about the Vineyard worship values because we think they're important, and we think that the Vineyard movement is at a stage in its history where actually we need to we need to rearticulate some of the things that are important to us, some of the things that we hold precious, rather than just make certain assumptions about um, about what lies behind some of the ways and the forms of worship that we do. Um, actually, it's, it's important to every once in a while to say them out loud and actually describe them. So, um, there's a paper uh, that John Wimber once wrote called The Values of a Worship Leader. He wrote this, Values affect what we think and consequently what we do. Our values are an intrinsic part of us although we seldom think about them in a conscious fashion. They determine the ideas, principles, and concepts a person or group can accept, assimilate, remember, and transfer. They can be fallible and must be constantly revised and reviewed in the light of scripture. So just even as I begin, I want to emphasize this, that um, the values themselves can be fallible. They are human constructs. We're not here to make idols out of our own ideas and worship them instead of God, but rather um, uh, we want to worship God and um, the particular way that we worship God, we want to have uh, good reasons, good sound theological, biblically based reasons for why we do things a certain way, rather than just mimicry, you know, just kind of observing form and, and, and recreating it without really having a an understanding of why they took that shape in the first place. Um, sorry, I should have also said, um, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to maybe speak for about 30, 35 minutes um, just on these values and on, on why values are important. Uh, give loads of space at the end for discussion, and this is a small group, so I expect to hear from everybody in this room. Um, so if you have questions as I'm talking, if you have objections or, or questions or observations, just, um, just hold on to them, and uh, there'll be plenty of space at the end uh, to bring them up, and I would love to, to hear what you think. Yeah, so we don't, we don't worship the values, they're, they're, but we don't think they're necessarily just our ideas in terms of they haven't come from nowhere. We think it's kind of our best understanding of God's ideas of worship. And so... They talk about the theological underpinnings, 
uh, like most things in the vineyard, there wasn't some time where people sat around a table and decided, ah, intimacy, that is what we must strive for. It's just something, it was just a hunger and a thirsting to meet with God. And so the language that we used to describe the values is just a way of kind of uh, capturing a moment that was a move of the Holy Spirit and, and, uh, and trying to understand it and, and seeing if it gives shape to something, something that looks different in our own age. So it's a way of just putting language to what God has given birth to. And it's important to get that the right way around. We, uh, we get values from God. We don't get God from our values. Yeah, God transcends all of this. He's above all of this. The values don't describe actual practices in worship. Instead, they describe the why behind the what and the how. There's all sorts of metaphors uh, that we might use to describe how values work in relation to practice, but some of the, they all fall a bit short, but you might find this idea helpful. Now, I'm not a gardener, but I do listen to Radio 4's Gardener's Question Time. Uh, I've got it on pod- podcast subscription, and uh, that basically makes me a horticultural expert. <laughs> and this is one of the things I've learned. When flowers grow, they produce seeds. If you were to take a seed and bury the seed, given certain conditions, it will then grow into a new plant which will bear the same type of flower. Think of vineyard worship values as the seeds of a particular kind of flower. You can take them and you can plant them in Scotland or Stoke or Singapore and given certain healthy conditions, they'll still produce a flower that you recognise as being in the same family as the original. It'll look the same. Now, just to develop that metaphor, there's a particular flower called a hydrangea. And there's an amazing thing that happens with a few types of hydrangeas. Depending on the condition of the soil, the flower it produces will actually be a different colour. You can take the seeds off of a pink hydrangea, plant it in a soil that has a slightly more alkaline content or something like that, and it will produce blue flowers. Now, if you think of vineyard values vineyard worship values as, as like the seeds of a hydrangea. You could plant it in California where, where this movement was birthed or you can plant it in Cumbria or Kathmandu. It will still produce a flower that looks like a hydrangea but the particular conditions of its, of its locality will cause it to take on its own colour. And that's what we want to see in, uh, in vineyard worship and that's why we think the values are important to articulate because they're like seeds. They're things that you, you, you bury deep underground. You don't necessarily see them. You don't necessarily talk about them all the time. But they produce something that recognisably carries the DNA of where it came from. But which takes on and adopts a particular character of its own depending on the locality in which it's planted. So if we don't want to be just mere imitators of a particular form or a particular style of worship. We need to look not just at the flower, but at the seeds. We should never become, we should be wary, we should absolutely be wary of never becoming a people who do things a certain way because that's the way we've always done them. Let's instead be a people who know why we do things a certain way. And as soon as a better way becomes obvious to do uh, the same thing, Let's do that instead. We're not, we're not married to a particular form of worship, but we do hold as precious 
the things that we're pursuing in worship, the things that we want that worship to reflect. In the Psalms, we're often told to sing a new song. Now that new song may well be about an unchanging and an eternal truth, but it's still a new song. It's an infant expression of, it, of an ancient and eternal reality. And it causes our hearts to well up with a, a renewed love and affection for who God is and what he's done. When Jesus uh, criticizes the Pharisees in the Gospels, which he does frequently, he reserves some of his harshest criticism for them. He's not, on the whole, complaining about what they're doing. I, you, you might want to go and, and look at this, maybe with fresh eyes. He's, he's actually pointing out how their actions lack the right motivation. In other words, their practice was absent of the values that God wanted to underpin them. This had two results. First, the things they were doing were simply actions without meaning. And second, they were neglecting other actions that they should have been doing. So Jesus says, for example, uh, you tithe from all, your, all your herbs, um, but you neglect mercy and justice. You should have done the former without neglecting the latter. And the reason why they've, they've, they've done the former and neglected the latter is because they've not understood the heart behind the tithe. The heart behind the tithe is God is a good and generous God who gives us everything that we have and we need to give it away. And that is a heart that responds to the poor and the needy with mercy and justice. You see where I'm going? So he's not criticizing them for tithing. Tithing is a good thing that they are doing. They're just doing it for the wrong reasons and that causes a deficiency in the rest of their lives. And value-driven worship will lead us to worship in spirit and truth rather than just imitation of style, doing it in a particular way, in a particular time, in a particular place. And value-driven worship doesn't leave us feel like we've just done our bit, uh, having done the half hour on the Sunday morning, but it propels us ever forward into an obedient life of discipleship of Jesus. So in what follows, I'm going to give an incredibly brief summary of the, the theological underpinnings of the five different values that we've identified in Vineyard Worship. Uh, I'm going to spend maybe three or four minutes on each value. I know that sounds like a short change, but actually I want to, one of the things I want to do is convey the importance of values and what they mean and what's, why it's worth thinking about them and what they could produce rather than the values themselves. I'd love for you to go away and reflect on these yourselves, but these are some of my reflections. If you want me to repeat anything, just interrupt me and say, just, just ask me to say that again, because uh, this bit coming up is going to be a little bit dense. Tim and I are literally writing a book on this stuff. Um, each of these is its own chapter and could probably, in truth, be its own book. Write a book on intimacy, book on, I mean, many books on kingdom expectation. First of all, let me just ask, have any of you heard what the five values of vineyard worship are. Put your hand up if you have heard of them. Yeah. Excellent. I think that's everybody in the room. Is there anybody who never heard them articulated? Okay, great. So it shouldn't come as a surprise to you then that these five values are intimacy, integrity, kingdom expectation, passion, and accessibility. Now I've put them in a certain order that you might not have heard them in before. That's just simply because um, the way we've thought these through, um, that 
there's a kind of natural flow if you think about them in those ways. Um, kingdom expectation and passion, for example, often come fourth and fifth in the readout because they're relatively new additions um, to the uh, to the canon. But um, but we, I, I've shuffled the order because I don't want them to seem of lesser importance. And I want to talk about accessibility last because I think that's what, that's the one which actually sort of has a great deal of impact on all the others. So, uh, yes. Um, are these values for the whole movement also this uh, America, like the states, all the vineyards all around the world? Are these like kind of defined by? It's a good All question. Together, yeah. My understanding happen? is that um, is is that they've all been expressed slightly differently in different regions in the world. In the UK, for example, uh, f for as long as I can remember, it's been three: intimacy, integrity, and accessibility. Um, for for a long while, we didn't notice, but over in America, they always had kingdom expectation as one of their values. And passion is one that John and Debbie Wright introduced a couple of years ago, um, and I don't know if that is matched uh, by something in the States. But like I said, there's kind of this is us trying to put language to what we sort of have experienced in the vineyard. So it's not kind of like uh, these are not biblical <laughs> in the sense that you know they they didn't sort of. Um, come down from heaven on stones of tablet, uh, yeah. tablets of stone. Totally. Uh, so we've got different ways of describing them, but you kind of, you know, the, you, you know the smell yes, of vineyard worship when you walk into a room. Yeah. So uh, I'm going to start with intimacy, um, arguably, arguably the most important uh, uh, value, but we can argue about things that are arguably true. Yeah. Uh, so you may have heard this statement before, uh, that the vineyard is a movement of worshipping communities whose highest priority is the presence of God. If you go to the Vineyard Worship UK and Ireland website, you'll see that statement as the very first headline. So we are worshipping communities, I want to underline that, whose highest priority, highest priority is the presence of God. So that's really important. We don't prioritise necessarily the things that God gives us. We prioritise him himself. And there's a saying in the vineyard. Um, I never know who said these. It's, it might have been Wimber. It might have been his, you know, his protégés. We seek your face, not your hand. Right? God is a good and generous God. He gives us things. But actually we seek him primarily for himself. For his presence. God is not some distant deity, he's God with us, Emmanuel. He's not far off sending out words and gifts from heaven that eventually make it by you know, FedEx to earth. And our worship is not like some balloon filled with helium that we just sort of let go of and hopefully it'll end up in the heavenly realms where God is. God is literally present with us. The Bible talks about how we're mysteriously actually already present in the throne room of God. The psalmist says, Better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. We just want to be with God. That's what the worship thing is all about. 
And there's a couple of things about intimacy that, uh, that I've identified as important. It's not enough to just simply be with God. We need to know who God is. And God has given us that knowledge through revelation. I think uh, the idea of intimacy is, um, is really difficult to grasp hold of if you, use, um, if you use certain models. For example, if you look at um, the, the types of things people share on social media, it conveys a sense of intimacy. You've got kind of eyes into the private life um, of an individual. But because they're behind a keyboard, behind a computer screen somewhere else in the world, you're not actually experiencing true intimacy with that person. It's not present with them. Likewise, you can be uh, on the London Underground underneath you know, someone's armpit um, <laughs> And you can be truly present with a person, uh, but, not, but not know them. So that isn't intimacy either. We need to be with the one who knows us and whom we know. And uh, yeah, from his revelation comes our response, and from his presence comes our transformation. So, that, so in intimacy, we respond and we are transformed. Revelation comes primarily from Scripture. God reveals himself as a particular kind of God. He's not the God of our imaginations. He's the God who has actually shown himself. The triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. When we worship, we are responding to God's invitation to us. You know, the passage in Revelation that Jesus is talking to the Laodiceans and he says he stands at the door and knocks and he's waiting for our invitation to invite him in so that he could dine with us this expression of intimacy that he's offering but we need to respond to there's this uh, criticism of a lot of contemporary worship that these songs all say Jesus is my boyfriend I don't know if you've ever heard that well Intimacy uh, has, has, um, has led to a kind of songwriting that, that, that has led to a certain kind of criticism. But, so the Bible doesn't describe Jesus as our boyfriend, but he does describe Jesus as our betrothed. We are the bride of Christ. He loves us. We're going to be wedded to him. It's a, it's a statement of true Intimacy. God desires and pursues us. And in his presence, our very selves are transformed. We begin to take on the likeness of Christ. You become what you worship. I think it was Greg Beale wrote a book with that title, talking, uh, did a study of um, idolatry in, in both the New Testament churches and in the Old Testament, and talked about how... Um, the object of your worship actually transforms you. You become the thing that you worship. And so we want to become like Jesus, so we worship Jesus. And the way that we become like Jesus is not through our own effort, but by the transformation that takes place in his presence. So that's intimacy. Integrity. You may have heard this invitation before. Come as you are. If you've heard it just thus far, 
you've only heard half of it. Come as you are, but don't stay as you are. This is an invitation to authenticity and transformation. <coughs> the idea of integrity is about an authentic wholeness, a completeness of being. This means that we neither act nor hide. We, we don't pretend to be who we think we ought to be. That, it, that sometimes manifests itself in... Um, you know, we don't put on our Sunday selves, you know, when we come to church. We come as we are, with everything that we are. But there's another aspect of integrity. There's a kind of, um, there's a kind of prophetic aspect to integrity. There are certain statements that are made about us in the New Testament. You are a new creation. You have been set free. And so we need to um, not deny the experience that we have, that sometimes those things don't ring true. But we say them anyway as a kind of prophetic proclamation that this is who we're becoming. So it's not inauthentic to say things that aren't necessarily... Um, married with your present day experience. It's authentic because God has said it's true and therefore we need to walk into it, walk into the process of becoming whole in the way that he is actually calling us into. So authenticity, integrity is not just about who we are, warts and all. It's about who we're becoming. Right? Coming as we are means that we don't leave anything behind. Our brokenness, our hurt, our bitterness, our pain, our anger, our regret. All of these things are dirty, but they're who, they're who we are. And so we can't just deny that they're what we're feeling simply because we don't think we ought to feel them. Let's just be real with God. God knows it. There's absolutely no point in pretending with Him. The only person we're kidding is ourselves. We need to bring it all before Him. That opens up the possibility for God to actually change us, change us into, into what we were made to be. Yeah, so come as you are, don't stay as you are. We come as we are with everything that we are, with everything we're feeling, with everything we're thinking, everything we're going through. But we, we come out of that encounter with the presence of God with a greater vision of who we're being made to be. Kingdom expectation. You may have heard or read this statement before. The kingdom of God is both now and not yet. How do I explain this in three minutes? <laughs> and what does that have to do with worship? Uh, unlike most explanations, the end and not the beginning is a really good place to start. When you look in uh, the Revelation to John at the back of the Bible, he's presented uh, with a vision where uh, those whom Jesus saves are brought into a city 
that is illuminated by his own presence. There's no pain, sickness, or death in that place. There's no slavery, there's no class systems, there's no wars, there's no natural disasters, earthquake, famine, or flood. There's only joy and peace as we live incorruptible lives, worshipping in the presence of our Father. But this is clearly not a description of our present reality, right? If it is, then, you know, maybe, maybe you've been taken up and you don't even know it. I don't know. So what does it actually mean? In what sense has the battle actually been won? In what sense is the kingdom now? Well, in the first part of the Lord's Prayer, we're taught to say these words. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now from these words, Jesus established certain truths about the kingdom of God. First of all, that God's kingdom is actually an effective reality in heaven, but not always on earth. Otherwise, there wouldn't be any point in asking for it. Secondly, that God's kingdom can be an effective reality on earth, but we must ask for it. When we hallow God's name, which means to honour God and to revere him, we create space into which we can then ask for his kingdom to become present on earth in the same way as it is in heaven. And the primary way we hallow his name is worship. So worship is how we actually establish the place that God rightfully has in our lives as the king. to where we enthrone him, to where we cast our crowns before him recognizing that whatever authority we own has been given to us. And as we worship our king, we take the dominion that we have, our own little kingdoms over our own selves, our our own private autonomy, and we place it under God's dominion. We choose to be his. We use the freedom that we've been given to say, I'm yours. uh, John The Apostle John in Revelation actually calls himself a slave of Christ. He's he's free because he's a slave of Christ. It's a beautiful image. So we pray your kingdom come, your will be done. We're acknowledging God's sovereignty, recognizing the victory of King Jesus and the futility of all the rival claims against him. We repent of having given any other idol, any authority or influence over our lives and we kneel before God. We also learn from Jesus that the kingdom comes in stages and that while evil has been defeated, it has not yet been destroyed. Defeated, but not yet destroyed. That means there is the ever-present reality of opposition. And as we make a movement towards God in worship, there is a corresponding, corresponding movement away from opposition and that has consequences the opposition decides hang on a minute that person's now my enemy I'm going to attack so worship is basically engagement in spiritual warfare we're right in the thick of it we trust that the war is won but the battle still rages have you heard this um, this illustration of how World War II ended where um, actually, the, the, the official declaration of surrender had come from Germany, but it still took 
a, a great deal of time for the Allied forces to actually come in and occupy all of that territory. And more people died in that intervening time than at any other part in the war. The victory had been won, but the battle raged on. That's what it means to say the kingdom is both now and not yet. So when we worship and when we're proclaiming God as king, we're inviting his kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven. And that means we should expect realities of the manifestation of his kingdom to come and break through. All of the exciting stuff we see in the Gospels, we should be looking out for in the room as we worship. People being set free. People being liberated from demonic oppression. People being healed uh, physically, mentally, spiritually, emotionally, socially. All of these things just uh, tastes, foretastes of the reality that God is going to give us uh, at the end of times. There's a, there's a really crucial prayer um, that we, we sometimes miss, I think, in the vineyard. We, we know how to pray, come Holy Spirit, but we don't often get caught saying, come Lord Jesus. And come Lord Jesus is that cry for his kingdom to come and to be established on earth with no opposition. So let's learn once again just to say, come Lord Jesus. How long, O oh Lord, must we wait? Because I, I, want, I want that city to come down and I want to see God face to face and for him to wipe the tears from my eyes. So that's kingdom expectation. That, that, that is just expecting a foretaste of the, of the future in the present. Passion. This is a funny one. I'm not naturally a man... Uh, disposed to <coughs> ostensible displays of passion, although I am passionate. Um, passion can take many forms, though. Uh, we know it when we see it. Uh, it looks exuberant. You know, it looks like something that's bubbling over in a person, and actually, just sort of, um, just a, a, a something so powerful that it cannot be contained, that it just overflows. And we, when we worship, we really need to create spaces where these sorts of things are uh, not just permitted, but invited, encouraged, right? But remembering that we're people of integrity, it's really important that we don't fake it. These things need to actually be deeply rooted in our lives. This needs to be an overflow of a reality in our life, rather than... Um, just an ostensible display of something that we wish were true. The word, the word um, passion is used very differently when you hear it in the phrase, the passion of the Christ. And when you hear it used in that context, it's almost the only way, it's, a, it's almost the only context in which it's used that way. And it's always been a mystery to me why. And that's why I'm so grateful to have a classic student and, and uh, linguist, Latin linguist, working alongside me, who tells me that the word passion has its origins in a word that has to do with suffering and endurance. So Jesus' passion, the passion of the Christ, is essentially about um, his 
willingness to suffer or endure what was necessary for him to, to, to attain a certain goal. He saw what was ahead of him. Hebrews uh, says, have I got this quote down here? Right, yeah, here it is. We look to Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, who for the sake of the joy that was set before him endured the cross, disregarding its shame, and has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such hostility against himself from sinners, so that you may not grow weary or lose heart. So that's about Jesus. He sees the joy of the glorification that he's going to experience. And for that reason, he suffers and endures the cross. And it's his passion that gets, it, that gets in there. It's his passion that causes him to, un, uh, to, to endure, to submit, to live under that necessary suffering. So passion isn't just an emotion that surfaces from time to time. It's, the actu- it's, it's actually an expression of a fire in our hearts for God, something that, um, that drives us, that um, keeps the engine turning so that we can just constantly persevere in pursuit of Jesus, going forward in the direction that he's already set out for us. You know, he's the pioneer, which means he's gone before us we're supposed to follow him. What does following look like? Endurance and suffering, perseverance. That needs that's, that requires passion. We need to we need to want it enough to suffer for it. So although it's not an emotion, passion will often be emotional. It will cause us to give so much of ourselves. Um, so completely of ourselves that we will start to actually demonstrate what we normally attribute to passionate people. Just overflow of desire. Worship in the Westminster Catechism, I think in both the shorter and the longer ones, it says uh, the chief end of man is to worship, is, is it, to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. The chief end of man is to glorify God. That's, that's, that's the, the goal. That's the thing that is set before us. That's the thing for which we must suffer and endure all things. However inconvenient, however painful, we must worship. Must worship. However you feel on a Sunday morning, you turn up tired, fed up, Again, Lord, do I have to do this again? Do I have to set up this PA system again? Set it down again? Do I have to play this song again? We do it because we must. We have to. It's our purpose. We must do it. However inconvenient, however painful. Last bit. Accessibility. You may have heard or read this statement before. Everybody gets to play. That means everybody. It's an activity in which we all participate. There's no us and them in worship. 
you know, one of the reasons the room is set out the way it is upstairs, and we've, we, we've, we've tried to sort of do it as much as possible as we did in the old place. We want, you know, there's no us and them between the band and, and, and us congregants. We're all in this together. We're worshipping together. Back in the old um, medieval churches in Europe, they, had this, uh, they often had this uh, architectural feature called a rood screen. And it was a part of the church building that would separate uh, one part of the church from the other. One area of the church was where the clergy operated, and one area of the church was where the laity uh, operated. And the laity were allowed to sort of peer through little sort of cracks in the root screens to see what was going on behind there as, uh, as the clergy took communion and, uh, and, and took part in worship, which only they were able to do. That kind of thing is, um, well, f- first of all, during the Protestant Reformation, a lot of the, those root screens were torn down in the name of what Martin Luther called the Ministry of All Believers. <clears throat> ministry of All Believers, everyone gets to play. Kind of similar stuff going on there, right? Martin Luther didn't, just wanted to destroy this barrier between the professional Christians and the rest, right? We're all in this together. Just because somebody's on a stage doing something doesn't mean they're better, holier, more devout, any of those things. They're just functioning, serving in a particular role at a particular time. And I think we need to be careful about what kind of rude screens we're erecting in worship <coughs> these days. Um, it can be anything from uh, songs being in unsingable keys. Um, you know, it, that, that's, that's a demarcation between the professional worshippers and the rest. How about, um, how about s- stages that are brightly lit while everybody else is plunged into darkness? And so you're on the stage and you can't even see the people that you're supposed to be leading. That, to me, is a rude screen. That's us and them. Right? And I know... I, I like lights. I like hazers. I think there's, there's a great book that David Roos wrote uh, called The Worship God is Seeking, and he describes Revelation. In fact, um, Harmony read it out yesterday, this lightning that comes from the throne and all this... Like just light and color, I think heaven is just going to be an epic show. It's just going to be absolutely beautiful, absolutely amazing. But we're all going to be in it together. It's not going to be us observing something that we're not involved in. It's all about participation. So anything that that separates us from them is a is a modern root screen. And what we want to do is invite people to participate in worship. And the Bible says there's no longer any Jew or Greek, no longer slave or free, no longer male or female, for all of you are one in Christ Jesus. We could add to that. There is no young or old, no black or white, able or disabled, musical or tone deaf, clergy or laity. In worship we are one. This is in no way intended to... um, to ignore diversity. I think diversity and unity are compatible. 
But what that means is that we have to do, we have to undergo the hard work to create spaces uh, where uh, it's conducive for people from a, from a vast range, a diverse range of experiences and life um, backgrounds to come together and share worship together. So accessibility has, uh, of all the values, some of the greatest practical challenges that has to do with, it has to do with everything to do with the physical environment of our worship as it does to do with the songs that we choose and the, and the, and the keys that we pitch them in. The, the, the level of the volume, you know, there's this kind of Goldilocks volume, like too quiet and people feel a little inhibit, inhibited and, and, and a bit too visible, too loud and it's more of an observation game again, it's more of a spectator sport but somewhere just in the middle it's loud enough that people can actually sort of lift their voices and feel brave but it's um, it's not so loud that you can't hear the voice of your people I don't know if you've, not, if you've just experienced it in that room upstairs it's just this, I can hear everybody as well as the band and it's so beautiful absolutely love it Yeah, we pray. Accessibility um, is kind of about building as many on ramps as possible. So a lot of the um, the activities in the vineyard are accompanied by explanations. You know, you don't just have somebody whacked out by the Holy Spirit on the floor, gibbering like an absolute madman, without also saying, "This is okay." Sometimes the Holy Spirit does this. And when we're leading worship, sometimes we want to just offer some words of explanation. If we're going into extended periods of improvised singing, sometimes you might just want to say to your congregation, this is okay. We're not here just to sing songs. We're here to encounter the presence of the living Lord. Right? Pour out your heart to him. This is safe space. So little moments of that, of those kinds of bits of teaching, offer on-ramps to people who are perhaps less familiar with our tradition, right? If you don't do that... Sorry? If you don't do that, yeah. you get the opposite, that people close down. People close down, people become resistant, and actually people become more interested in you than in God. You know, I've said things into the microphone like, you know, we're, we're just going to dwell in this moment for, for a little while. We're not in a rush to get to the next song. We're just going to stay here and just encounter the presence of God. And as soon as I've said that, people have taken their eyes off me, waiting for the next thing I'm going to do, and they've put their eyes on God and waiting for the next thing He's going to do. Right? So accessibility is really about sort of just acknowledging that there are, there's a vast range of experience in the room that you're leading. We want to bring them all together into one voice, into one song, into one communion, and that means we've got to make it, we've got to build on-ramps all the time, constantly inviting participation rather than spectators. So, kind of in conclusion, um, just want to say, uh, firstly, these values can often be in tension with one another. Sometimes you find um, that expressions uh, of accessibility, for example, impact against the other values. So, for example, um, yeah, there's, there's just certain aspects of, of the other values, like kingdom expectation. We expect the movement of the Holy Spirit to come and do some, some, some wild stuff like he did in the Gospels. That can sometimes be a little bit 
confusing to the newcomer. And so when you're inviting the Holy Spirit to come and, and reign, you know, sometimes you don't know what the heck is going on. You just feel like you, you know, you're not in control of this train anymore. This train is being driven by the Holy Spirit. And that doesn't always lend itself well to accessibility if you're trying to make it sort of safe space. But there's this constant push and pull in each direction that you're trying to deal with. Yeah, sometimes you want to prioritise a value in different contexts. Um, yeah, say for example you're in a small home group and you're in a group with people who have been with you for a really long time. Uh, you might not need to um, prioritise accessibility because you might just be so familiar with one another that you can just dive right into a place of intimacy. But say you've got visitors to that group, you want to suddenly prioritise accessibility in that context and say, this is what we're doing, this is what we're about to do, just kind of narrate the experience and curate the experience. So the spirit needs to lead you in terms of which, one, which pedal you're pushing at any particular time. But the other important thing, and this is going back to the beginning, why values are important, because they, they describe the why and not the how. We're really, um, we're really excited about the potential creativity that might be birthed if people begin to take the values seriously, because um, it's, it seems to me that there may very well be ways of doing worship that we just haven't considered, that simply pursue the same agenda. You know, we're seeking intimacy with our whole hearts, looking for the power of God to break through, inviting participation from absolutely everybody, uh, and, and, and doing it with all of our hearts. We're doing all of those things, and it looks completely different to the liturgy that we're, com- that, that we're currently used to, the kind of seamless uh, flow of songs. So what might worship look like if we start to, start to think outside of the box? You know, what other activities might there be that, pursue the, that are born out of the same seeds? You, know, you plant these seeds in different soil, they look completely different. What might they look like? I would really hope that a vineyard church planted in Bombay has worship that sounds different to, wor- to worship that's you know, in... I need an alliteration. Birmingham. Birmingham. So, um, (laughs) you know, because of accessibility, because of integrity, it wouldn't make sense for people in Bombay to sound like people in Birmingham. They've got their own culture to to bring to that expression of worship, but it's still vineyard worship. You recognize it because they're pursuing the presence of God. Right? It's born out of the same values, but it looks... It looks different, it sounds different, it feels different, but it's the same. So that's what we're looking for in, in really just trying to dig beneath the surface, take a look at those seeds again, see what they might look like if you plant them somewhere else. So, thanks guys. Have you got, we've got like 15 minutes. Anyone got any questions? Yeah, Jesse, that was amazing, thank you. Um, I just wanted to, I'm... I'm currently looking at different ways of um, doing church, so uh, we live in a community where, um, near to where uh, the Vineyard Church is, but there's um, you know, a lot of people there going through the church. 
So we're doing things like message church in the community. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm interested in, you know, the tensions you were talking about at the end there, particularly the tension between kingdom expectation. You know, obviously, all we're wanting to do in that community is see the kingdom come. And accessibility, so, you know, that the kind of intimacy that we know we can experience through worship might not be totally accessible to people then. Uh, so just, I guess just your thoughts on that, particularly in the context perhaps of you know, completely unchurched, different expression of church. Yeah. How, about, how you hold those things? Yeah, I think um, folk like John Wimber and those who learn from John Wimber did this so well. Uh, and I remember a worship treat a few years ago that John and Amy Mumford taught at, and they were talking about just sort of when the Holy Spirit comes and there's, there's kind of power encounters. And they just said to the room, is there anybody here among among us today who who just when they see like physical manifestations of the of the Holy Spirit they just don't know what's going on and about I don't know a dozen people put their hands up and they said well we're going to do ministry time right now and what I want you to do those guys who put your hand up I want you to come up on stage with us John and Ellie and and we're just going to watch what goes on in the ministry and we're just going to talk about what we see and John Mumford himself describes an experience of when he first went over to Anaheim and he's sitting there and somebody's lying on the floor next to him and he sort of went down and said, uh, what are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> you know, there's this kind of inquisitive nature. And I think this idea about being sort of uh, naturally supernatural means that just because God's power is moving in us doesn't mean we can't still have a conversation mm-hmm. about it. Yeah. Right? And, and John Mumford when those people came up on stage on the worship retreat, one, one, somebody I know personally was there, and I asked her what was the conversation like, and, and John Mumford said to her, well, what would happen if you stuck your finger into an electrical socket? And she said, I guess you'd convulse and fall on the floor. And he said, well, that's what happens when you touch power. Uh-huh. <laughs> and I just think mo- just conversations like that normalise and demystify the experience to people. And I think that needs to become more of a habit for us. Uh, I think for a long time we've been asleep at the wheel in terms of the explanatory part of the kingdom um, manifestation in our, in our presence. I think that we need to be... Um, we need to be matter-of-fact about it. We need to be clear about it. We need to be unafraid of stepping in and out of the supernatural and the natural zones. Like, it's some sort of Scooby zone that we've got to kind of dial into, you know. Sorry, that was just a Wayne's World moment. Uh, you know, we, we need to be... You know, we need to have one foot in, in one and one foot in the other. And, you know... You know, like we talk about when we're praying for people with our eyes open and sort of asking people if you're okay and there's anything changed and stuff like that. It's just like, let's just not suddenly forget that we, you know, we don't just know things because we know them. You know, sometimes God does deliver that information, but actually it's helpful just to say what's going on. So, yeah, so I think that's how kingdom expectation and, and accessibility can be can be uh, values that kind of actually work together. Mm. I think the more we do that, the more we normalise it, the more we, the, the less weird it is. Mm. You know, it's like, that's what happens when you touch power. Yeah. You shake and you fall on the floor. Like, oh, 
Like we're talking about the King of Kings, the Creator of the universe. If He's here, why wouldn't I fall down? <laughs> so yeah, thanks for that question. Any other questions? A very vocal member, but <laughs> you look so happy. <laughs> hi. Um, hi. <clears throat> we spoke this morning about some of the older songs um, and the intimacy they kind of breed when you bring them into you know, a worship environment. Mm. Um, do you think newer vineyard songs that are coming out don't encompass a lot of the values that you're talking about there, where the older ones did? Wow. Yeah, that's a tough question. Because I've been in scenarios where we've introduced, because I used to play uh, Trent with Dave Miller, so we were introducing mm. a lot of, mm. of music, and there was no denying you could see the atmosphere change mm. when you'd bring, you know, like, isn't he? Mm. Or then you'd introduce another, like a newer song. Mm. I think there's, um, there's something about familiarity um, that that makes it easier to to sort of enter in mm. you know as soon as you've um, you know when you're learning a new song you're using kind of a part of your 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 consciousness to sort of assimilate and learn a new thing and you've, you've then got less capacity to sort of be aware of other things that are going on and so I think when you encounter something familiar it's almost like a shortcut to, to, um, to intimacy, isn't it? Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Um, and I think that um, I think there's there's some truth in in what you're saying, but I think that um, if we were to ask somebody walking in off the street who's got absolutely no familiarity with some of those old songs, I don't think you would necessarily be able to make that distinction uh, mm. that that these old songs. Uh, are better at encapsulating these values than these new songs. I think it sometimes feels that way because of our familiarity with them. That's my, that's, that's my sense. Having said that, I think that there are certain trends within songwriting, and Suze was talking about you know, the, the, the dreaded octave jump in her, um, in her seminar. There are certain trends that I find inaccessible. Yeah, um, overproduction. And, yeah. Yeah, certain, certain uh, aspects of the modern worship industry that has lent itself to forgetfulness that we're supposed to be in this together, right? And that we're supposed to be... Uh, and that there's something beautiful about simplicity. Um, there's something beautiful um, about uh, just simple songs, simple love songs to Jesus. And... Um, and I think we do have some work to do to, uh, to do that. I think there are just certain trends that we could do with moving beyond. <laughs> yeah. um, so, so yes and no, I think, is what I'm saying. Um, I think we're heading into... My feeling is that we're, we're on a really good trajectory right now. The songs I'm hearing in the movement right now fill me with a lot of hope. Um, yeah. And, and I think it has a lot to do with um, songwriters actually looking for um, like intentionally writing certain songs f 
for certain reasons. Mm. You know, there was a time when somebody made a criticism to John Wimber, you know, this movement doesn't have enough songs about the cross. And he took that criticism on board. He said, songwriters, write more songs about the cross. <laughs> and so when you see a deficiency, you've got to actually intentionally move into that space. Mm. Right? So uh, what I see a lot of songwriters doing now is actually, especially, well, no, I'm not going to name names, but um, I see certain people saying, there's not enough confession and repentance in our songs. Let's write songs about that. And, and you get these kind of, what I feel are kind of almost like manifesto songs. It's like, like these are songs that are about this because we're saying, we're not just saying this is a song I wrote about this, we're saying we need more songs about this. Like confession songs, uh, like Kira Eleazar. Um, songs about God's um, uh, complete, in, completely indiscriminate love like uh, we sang last night um, uh, you welcome the broken the yeah. loser the winner the pure and profane and the gambler the drunkard the I don't know I'm getting I'm making up words now but it's like <laughs> it's like which one am I today you know I actually start to think oh my goodness which one of those am I today God welcomes me and so I think there's work for songwriters to do to, to make up the deficit, but I think there's always going to be a hole somewhere. Yeah. I think there will always, you know, whichever direction you push in leaves a bit of a void behind it sometimes, and so you always get these moments where you think, we need to do more of that because we've neglected that for a while. So. Yeah. Graham? I just want to back you up on something, give you an example of what you've been talking about. I think it is as well that songs that are written out of the values you've been talking about. Mm just carry a weight that songs that are written for the sake of writing songs. So like, isn't he is an example of that where it kind of illustrates that about the value of intimacy and it's really simple. Yeah. And so at Edinburgh we've had um, quite a lot of non-Christians come to our Sunday mornings yeah. uh, just because we've got people um, who bring them. <laughs> it's, kinda, it's been great. And to people that aren't church, and one girl in particular who hadn't even kind of held a Bible in real life before. Right. You know, it's just completely yeah. didn't get the, you know, nothing to do with church culture at all. So she kind of came in fresh, and she broke down in in, in what, what isn't he was some, and she just couldn't believe that. I mean, she couldn't express how she was feeling about yeah. it. Something just she's like, what, what's happening? Yeah. And I don't know if it was that because it was the song as such, but I think it's because of what the song came from, mm. and because it, and obviously there's anointing on and all the rest of it, but. Because it came from that value of intimacy, yeah. and it's so simple, and it's just the melody and the lyric is just something powerful happens when we use that stuff. Mm. And that could be new stuff, oral stuff, but something from that. Yeah. And I think Jesus be the center was another one that some another non-Christian kind of come in and picked up on. She went, "Wow, what was that?" Right. You know. And yeah. so if you're right, if with what Harmony was talking about this morning, from writing it and values, mm. then powerful things will happen rather than so. writing to sell stuff. Yeah. Than writing to. Yeah, I think uh, so. And, and, and just, to, just to kind of finish, because we're out of time, I think the thing is, is that we're not saying that other people's values suck. We're just saying that this is kind of, this is our DNA, and, and, it's, and it's worth protecting. We, we want, we're stating these things positively without feeling any need to say anything negatively about other things that people are doing. We just, we just want to, you know, this, this move, movement was birthed because of, because of, the Holy Spirit just causing people to um, 
to stop singing about God and to sing to God, to actually recognize that he was in the room, right? And he was worth, he was worth uh, some acknowledgement, right? He was there, right? It's, you know, and that has birthed a whole bunch of other, you know, uh, worship expressions um, around the world. Take, take your pick. Go, go on YouTube, you can find them. But what I'm really wary of is that we use YouTube as our instructor, our teacher, because what happens when we do that is that all we're observing is the, the form that something has taken. Um, now, those people often have very, very well-considered reasons for why that form has actually emerged the way it has. But if you just imitate them, you're going to end up with a kind of a hollow shell. What we want to do is build something uh, for a purpose. We, we want to be a purpose-driven worship movement, right? And these are our purposes, to be intimate with the Lord, to expect his kingdom to come, to be real, authentic, whole people before the Lord, to do it whatever the cost, and to do it with everybody. That's all I got. Thanks, guys. Thanks for coming.